0: You don't want to hear from me because we have some of the most amazing minds um, on the issue of the topic of today uh, and its homelessness in, in youth. Um, reading bios, which we have on the website, uh, every single department, I believe, in the country um, that's ever touched youth homelessness or homelessness has been headed by one of these three individuals um, Really, it's incredible, and and the, and the bios, the resumes, I can't even imagine what an actual CV would look like for, for each of you, so it really is an honor uh, to have you, and I, I did encourage uh, all of you earlier, if you have questions, please uh, be thoughtful and, and put, them, put them together now uh, or during the panel, and we can collect them and, and ask them later, uh, because to have these three minds together right where any one of them individually um is, is pretty incredible but together you know who knows maybe we can provide some some real uh solutions and some momentum towards um you know helping this this issue that is so uh important around the country and especially here in chicago um there's a short video i'll, I'll kick off in a minute um and then I'm going to ask Brian Samuels to really lead this discussion, right, uh, among the three. Um, but before that, so I, so they can get right to it, um, I'll just mention briefly, and again, please ch- read these bios because they are incredible. Uh, Jeff Olivet is here from D.C. Um, you are based mostly D.C., right? And, but we were just talking, he's all over the country. So he's he's... Uh, he's the director of the executive director of the U.S. Interagency Council on Homelessness, um, and what we were talking about is how he's been traveling all over the country, really seeing solutions and, and problems in various cities, and and helping to share best practices with mayors and and other nonprofits that are doing all the the hard work. Um, he's, he's d- run so many other departments and ha- has 25 years at least of experience. Um, and, and it's just such uh, an honor to have him here in Chicago, uh, and, and obviously here at the city club, uh, and we'll hear from Jeff in, in just a moment. Um, also such an honor to have Carolyn Ross. Um, Carolyn is, is currently the president and CEO of, uh, all making, all, I'm sorry, all Chicago making homelessness history. How great does that sound? Making homelessness history. We start here. I know it's been in the works for a number of years, but let's let's move that forward here. Um, she's been in Chicago for many years. If uh, we're, uh, we did, Chicago let her go down to the Quad Cities for a few years, but she's back, right? And um, and she's she's run the Illinois Department of. Uh, uh, Children and Family Services, the Heartland Center uh, for Behavioral Change, and now all Chicago uh, since since 2019. Um, also educated here in, in Chicago at DePaul, so it's great to have her back. Um, and then I'm going to. Well, you know what? I'll I'll, I'll Talk about Brian for a minute, and then as we show the video, I'll ask them to join join me on the stage. How does that sound? Um, so Brian Samuels is the executive director of the Shapen Hall at University of Chicago. University of Chicago is a great partner uh, of the City Club of Chicago, and and just the thought leaders that come out of that institution—the Crown School, the Pritzker School—that you know, the 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 um, the, the public policy school. There's so many different schools there, and, and so many different amazing people that are our, our leading our future leaders uh, and, and he leads that um, and has been he's been the chief of staff for the Chicago Public Schools here locally the Department of Children and Family Services again these are these are people that know what they're talking about so please um, listen up take some notes ask some questions we're in we're in class today it's gonna be a good exciting uh, time to hopefully move move things forward. Uh, and with that, I'm going to uh, cue the video. I'll mention if you have questions, just kind of raise your hand up. I'll see them, or Amanda will see you, and we'll come by and collect them so that we can ask the questions of the panelists. Hopefully, if we have a few minutes after after the discussion, um, and then I'm going to go ahead and cue this video. And hope you enjoyed the discussion. <laughs>
1: The success of our communities depends on our youth getting the best possible start in life. That's why it's alarming that 4.2 million young people experience some form of homelessness. That's one in 10 young adults, ages 18 to 25, and one in 30 kids, ages 13 to 17, who are at a disadvantage right out of the gate. Homelessness can look like sleeping in a park, staying in a car, or finding temporary, often dangerous shelter with other people but youth homelessness is a solvable problem. Community systems can help prevent the trauma of homelessness by knowing the characteristics of youth who are at the greatest risk, like the death of a parent, their race, sexual orientation, gender identity, pregnancy and parenting, being in the foster care system, or juvenile detention. Together, we can intervene earlier to prevent homelessness so that each young person can get the best possible start in life learn more at Uh, chapinhall.org.
2: Great and uh, good good afternoon everyone. Um, We so appreciate you being willing to squeeze us into your busy schedules (laughs) this summer. People have vacations, people have jobs that they're uh, juggling as well as deciding whether to go into the office or not go into the office today or tomorrow. Uh, um, uh, And so we really appreciate you being able to uh, spend some time with us this afternoon. Uh, th- this uh, gathering was really motivated out of the reality that uh, we had this uh, guy, Jeff Olivet. Uh, was going to be in town, uh, and he plays an important role in the Biden administration and the federal government as it relates to both adult as well as youth homelessness. Uh, And so we just wanted to share the value of having him in this place and having a dialogue about what he and others are seeing um, in this space, as well as um, looking forward and really trying to imagine Uh, what the world looks like uh, in the future in terms of a better, more uh, effective response um, to youth and young adults experiencing uh, homelessness. And so we really really wanted to leverage uh, that visibility and bring this uh, group of folks together to have an intimate conversation and to share perspectives. Uh, Carolyn Ross uh, uh, is an amazingly talented person who's seen many different systems uh, in terms of her own leadership, Uh, and to bring her to the table made a ton of sense uh, to allow us to both talk about things at a national level as well as those issues that are critical um, at a local level. Uh, We hope this conversation does a good job of of integrating both of them. Um, And then the third reason uh, um, that may be less obvious but we think equally as important for this gathering uh, was really the recognition that much of government uh, um, has begun to really pivot Uh, from a system of trying to respond to problems once they have happened uh, and move upstream to begin to anticipate the kinds of problems that might happen uh, and intervene more effectively to address the issue earlier in life, earlier in the sequence of events that occur before a young person finds themselves um, homeless. So, So the child welfare system is trying to figure out how to get upstream and get to families before Uh, Abuse and neglect occurs and they come into the contact of the child welfare system. Um, The juvenile justice system here in Cook County and across the state of Illinois is trying to get upstream and respond more effectively earlier uh, so that young people don't have the traumatic experience of of having to be uh, um, in a locked facility for um, an ungodly amount of time. Um, And so... Even in child, I'm sorry, even in this work of youth homelessness, um, Jeff has really made the pivot to really kind of open the spectrum of conversation to not just talk about what do we do about the young people who are experiencing homeless and how do we respond to that more effectively, but also how do we get ahead of the game and begin to think about what an upstream strategy looks like for youth homelessness as well as adult homelessness so, so that these systems are beginning to align uh, having similar goals and objectives, and ultimately trying to weave together um, a patchwork of federal and state programs uh, in a matter that allows us to be more responsive and more effective to the most vulnerable uh, children and families um, uh, in our society. And so in that context, we're going to talk about wh- what things look like today. We're also going to talk about some of the opportunities to pivot um, and look forward. Um, as the video indicated, about one in 30 minors uh, experience at least one episode of housing instability um, during a single year, and about one in 10 uh, um, young adults between the, 18, uh, between the ages of 18 and 25 uh, uh, experience housing instability at least for one night um, during the year. Um, we also know Uh, um, that the pandemic added another layer of vulnerability uh, um, to young people, particularly around housing. So um, there there was a study that found that about um, 4 million young people said that they had little to no confidence that they had the resources necessary to pay the rent next month. And when you Kind of segment that population. What you see is the respondents that said that they had little to no confidence. About twenty percent of them were white and Asian. About thirty-five percent of them were Latinx. About fifty percent of them uh, were African American. Uh, And so you see uh, uh, um, that while um, all each of those groups were affected by the pandemic, uh, um, some groups were more affected. Um, um, than others, uh, we often talk about risk factors th- those things that are associated with becoming homeless, uh, and those are things like uh, not having a high school diploma or GED, being unmarried in parenting, um, coming from households that are uh, are below twenty five thousand um, dollars a year in income, uh, uh, being LGBTq or being african American Or or Hispanic. Um, We often think about these issues as if those single characteristics explain what the challenges are, and we rarely see the intersectionality of those issues. So uh, um, the vulnerabilities that happen if you're in one of those groups is important to pay attention to, but what if you're black and LGBTQ and come from a house of less than $24,000 and don't have a high school diploma or a GED. The the problem, the likelihood of becoming homeless doesn't remain the same, it multiplies. Um, And so part of what we know increasingly uh, is that that intersectionality drives uh, um, the experiences of some groups um, at rates higher than others. Um, And then I'd make one other, I think, really important point here in Chicago, uh, which is that um, we've done work across the country around these issues uh, of youth homelessness. We've looked at the experiences of young people below the age of 18 and those 18 to 25. Uh, um, and one of the most striking characteristics that makes Chicago unique is the, the really high rate at which African Americans are experiencing um, uh, homelessness as a, as a minor or as a, as a young adult. So whereas in large counties across the country, maybe about 50% um, of young people um, who are African American are more likely to be homeless than others, in Chicago, that number went up to about 65%. So when you try to account for the population of young people in Chicago that represent the greatest risk for homelessness in Chicago... Uh, um, there are probably lots of um, obvious reasons why, but African Americans are particularly impacted by this issue. I raise it in part because uh, um, uh, people often hesitate to call it out, um, uh, and it makes it more complex about how we solve the problem. Um, But it's, I think, also really important that if we don't acknowledge uh, um, the the centrality um, of the problem in the black community here, we're probably unlikely to solve the problem. Uh, so I'd make that point. I'll make one other point and then get to the panel discussion, which is um, we talk about risk factors, about the things that are associated with being uh, um, homeless as a, as a minor um, or uh, as a young adult. Um, but, but that's an association. It's, the, it's those things are related to one another as opposed to they cause one another. Right? And so, in that context, as we try to pivot from just addressing the issues of those who are experiencing homelessness to, to trying to anticipate those that might experience homelessness uh, in order to respond more effectively, um, those, those, those risk factors aren't particularly good predictors um, of, uh, of those who are likely to experience homelessness. But we have this really valuable um, study. Um, specifically, qualitative study that we conducted a, a number of years ago, where we asked young people uh, um, directly um, from their perspective, where did their homeless journey begin? Right? What were the antecedents? What were the things that they were experiencing in their childhood or young adulthood that they think were the beginning of their move towards becoming homeless? Becoming homeless, um, and when when. They answer those questions. Uh, while this information isn't a representative sample, we we oversampled for those youth that were likely most vulnerable: African American, LGBTQ, and others. Um, the story that they tell is quite compelling. So that more than fifty of them, fifty percent of them, talked about chronic conflict and violence in their family dynamic. Almost fifty percent of them talk about intrafamiliar or. Uh, um, st- uh, stigma and discrimination with LGBTQ and multi-race young people uh, more, more likely than others to name that um, as a problem. Um, th- their, their entry into foster care is named um, as an antecedent. The death of a parent. Almost 35% of young people we interviewed talked about the death of a parent being the beginning of their journey towards youth homelessness. Uh, parental substance abuse and mental health. Um, family homelessness, um, and and while this is striking, but nonetheless uh, important to note, um, about 17% of young people said uh, um, that their parents chose their new partner over them and their housing stability as the beginning of their movement towards youth homelessness. I raise these issues because these are the things that we might have to grapple with if we want to get ahead of the game and try to anticipate where do you go, where do you engage, how do you serve, how do you support, uh, um, so that we can prevent those downstream um, occurrences. And so we'll talk about this stuff in more detail, but I just wanted to frame out kind of how we get to this discussion about how we effectively address the issues we see in front of us, but how also do we pivot and move towards Um, trying to do more prevention. The most striking thing that we found in the study that's relevant for this group, um, when we interviewed young people in households where there were homeless youth, and we asked the question, um, how many episodes of homelessness had they experienced? 50% of the people who answered that question said that this was the first homeless experience that they had. And that's important because um, if the only thing we do is address the issue of those who are already homeless, there's going to be 50% of that population that's going to replace them the next year, right? And so working just on the back end of solving the problem doesn't solve the problem uh, when half of the young people are, are having the experience for the first time. So how do we counterbalance effectively intervention for those that are already vulnerable and experiencing homelessness, and at the same time, move upstream to understand that 50% of young people, but for something else, might also find themselves uh, being runaway or homeless. So it's that context that we hope to spend most of our conversation today. So I'm going to transition over here and let these two guys uh, uh, take the reins here uh, and move us forward. But Thanks again for everybody being here today. Mm-hmm. So so as I indicated, um, we, we wanted to, to start the conversation with just um, a lay of the land. What are people seeing today? Right. And what are people saying in terms of innovation and changes that are happening in the homeless space that are important to note, um, as well as what people are contemplating? Is there anything innovative or people trying to do um, things differently in order to produce a more effective intervention for young people? So um, if we start there, uh, Jeff, can you can you give us an an overview of, of what you're seeing nationally? Um, uh, in response to youth homelessness um, and any interesting innovations or uh, uh, different approaches to addressing the issue,
3: yeah, I'm really struck by um, the the numbers that you shared earlier, Brian, of the one in thirty. Uh, adolescents uh, in America experiencing homelessness. And my mind automatically goes to the classroom of my 16-year-old daughter in high school. Think about 30 young people. She goes to a big bustling public school, Um, pretty diverse economically, racially. One kid in every classroom in that school is going to be homeless at some point. Uh, That's kind of extraordinary when you start thinking about it. So there's the numerical side of this that is at crisis proportions. There's also the human side of it that's at crisis proportions. And what I mean by that is when a young person experiences homelessness, whether they're 13 or 21, Mm -hmm. it is a devastating experience at a really critical point in that young person's life. You know, we talk a lot in child development about the zero to five window being so critical. As a parent of not only a 16-year-old, but also a 23-year-old, my my kids both squarely fit into the age group that we're talking about here. Uh, They're really critical developmental stages. They're, They're times when somebody is branching out from family towards independence, branching out from childhood into adolescence and then adulthood. And when that's disrupted by trauma, by violence, by rejection from family and friends and community, that's devastating stuff. And I've worked over the years with a lot of different folks experiencing homelessness, from youth and young adults all the way up through older adults and families and and even seniors. And when I talk to 50-year-olds who are homeless, one common experience that so many of them have is I was in foster care when I was a young person. And so when when I see a 21-year-old aging out of foster care, I don't only see that 21-year-old. I see the danger of them being that 50-year-old who's homeless on down the line. What that means is that we have a moment to intervene. And that moment might be earlier, 13 to 17. It might be a little later, 18 to 25. But there is a moment to intervene and to disrupt that cycle to disrupt the cycle of trauma and violence and disconnection and missed opportunities for education, for work, for connecting in the community. You asked about innovation. I'm just talking about the problem so far. So let me let me shift gears because I, I think there there really are bright spots around this. And uh, while well, youth homelessness is a relatively small percentage of the overall homeless population. Maybe 5%, maybe more. I think we undercount and underestimate uh, how many young people are homeless. Um, but it's a relatively small percentage, but an incredible opportunity for intervention. The stats you talked about around racial inequities and around LGBTQ identity among young people also says that when we intervene with young people who are homeless those are also racial justice interventions. Those are also LGBTQ interventions because young people who are homeless are so much more likely to be black and brown. They're so much more likely to identify as LGBTQ. And so when we think about what racial justice starts looking like in society, here's a place we can point our energy. And the the few bright spots that I'll talk about that I think really are innovative one thing that we see happening in the youth homelessness response around the country is emerging leadership by young people who have experienced homelessness. Uh, you know, For too long, we've had nonprofits and government entities that sit in rooms with closed doors and people who have never experienced that thing make decisions on behalf of people who are impacted by that thing. I think about this when I see um, legislation being passed that limits women's reproductive rights, and the people in the picture are a bunch of men. Have you seen those pictures? A lot of them are named Steve, right? (laughs) No offense to the Steve's in the room. They're 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 Michaels also. Um, When you think about uh, how we address mental illness, it's often people who have not had that experience of first-hand mental illness who are making decisions about budgets, about program design, about how we respond. There's a phrase that came out of the the mental health recovery movement that says, nothing about us without us. Mm -hmm. Nothing about us without us. And we're seeing that happen in the youth homelessness space. And the rest of the homelessness world, those who serve families and adults and veterans and older Americans, they're looking... To the youth homeless programs that are creating youth action boards that are putting young people on boards of directors for homeless community wide homelessness response systems, um, philanthropies investing in young people who have experienced homelessness as leaders and it 's been extraordinary because what 's happened is not only is the, the solution better designed. It is also inherently focused on racial justice. It's inherently focused on acceptance of all gender identities and all sexual orientations because that's who's in the room making the decisions now. And it's done in solidarity, often with older adult allies, with folks who have a lot of years of experience. I don't even want to add up the years of experience sitting around this little table right now. Uh, It would be shocking so, there, there's room for partnership, I think. So, that, that's, that's one innovation. The other innovation, and I, I, we can talk about this more uh, going forward, is really around prevention. And I think, especially when we think about young people aging out of foster care, this is a defined group of people. We know who they are, they are in a system. We have their names, we know where they've been. Um, you know, many people have pretty terrible experiences in child welfare and foster care systems, but there's an opportunity to make sure that no young person ever ages out of foster care into homelessness. Because we know who they are. We know where they are. And yet far too many become homeless in the first three or four years after they age out of foster care. So what we're beginning to see is a more, um, I think, an increased consciousness of that opportunity and an increased desire to really focus prevention efforts on this, this very specific point in life and point in people's development.
2: So uh, as a former child welfare director, I can't uh, help but uh, weigh in on uh, Jeff's last point. Um, by, by making uh, his analysis maybe one more um, level uh, more sophisticated, right? <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm dodging with him.
4: Um, but like if you think lot,
2: about right? it, the 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 data that we collected and the conversations we had for young people that were experiencing homelessness, there was a large percentage, as Jeff indicated, somewhere between a third uh, uh, and half of young people were uh, indicating that they had an experience um, as it relates to the child welfare system. But most of them weren't necessarily saying they aged out of foster care. So if you think about it this way... Um, the uh, young person that ages out of foster care enters foster care on average at the age of 14. If you took all of the young people that were 14, 15, 16, 17, and 18 and in foster care, and you looked at that population, it would be much larger than the population that ages out. Right? Aging out today is less than 20,000 kids. But... The 14, 15, 16, 17 and 18 year olds is a much larger population. So I think that the important indicator around child welfare is not how you left the system, but at what age that you enter the system. Because a lot of these young people that are homeless, they were homeless after they were in the child welfare system. They left it and went back home. They moved to permanency and then move to homelessness, right? So we actually make it easy if the group we focus on is just the group that ages out of foster care, thinking more complexly about the vulnerable population. We ought to be thinking about all of those adolescents as they enter foster care and the extent to which when they exit, They experience housing instability regardless of how they actually exited Mm -hmm. the system. Mm -hmm. That's right. Mm -hmm. And this is a beautiful transition uh, for Carolyn here because she both has that child welfare background as well as Mm -hmm. focused her energies much of today. On addressing this issue uh, yeah. of homelessness, so, so why don't you talk some about just the, the localness um, of homelessness here? Mm-hmm. What you're seeing, how, how the challenges you, you see families facing, yeah. uh, the, the kinds of things that are important for this audience to understand mm-hmm. of, about the localness uh, of of homelessness here today.
4: Absolutely. Thanks for having us here today. Is this going good for you so far? Yes. Okay. So, ladies, it's my turn. Uh, <laughs> It is, what you're seeing up here is such a critical part of the work that we're doing and it's it's kind of defining partnerships and learning how to develop those and build those as resources. Here in Chicago, just a simple version of all Chicago making homelessness history, what is that? We're not a service provider, but we see ourselves as the hub of the wheel that reaches out to many different systems because for us, homelessness is often an outcome that we're trying to avoid by all means possible, correct? And so there are many, many different streams that lead into that of issues that are just not identified or addressed. We try to stay in our lane because our issue is about getting people to the stability of a home. So one of the things that we do is that we manage the Homeless Management Information System. If you've ever been on our website, we carry the data for every person who is seeking assistance with their housing issues, with their being homeless. The audacity of that is, that's just the people who have the courage, the resource, the know-how, the gifts to actually ask for help. So nobody really knows the extent of homelessness. We're working with what comes to us and trying Mm -hmm. to work with many, many different partners, a few I see here in the audience today, who get this. This is really important that when people come and access resources, we're able to connect, and we don't have time to figure out their whole history. But at that time, as I heard both of you refer to the prevention effort, when we know that a child has a young person has entered a point of conflict, challenge, or problem, that is an opportunity for us to grab that and see where we can help identify what their needs are. Because one of the things we have found most successful, if you want to know, how many of you are parents, grandparents in this room? So it was always difficult when I used to do some therapy groups with young families, they'd always talk about how horrible their life was with their kids. And then when they started talking, they realized their kids were going through some of the same things. You're not in this by yourself. The, the problem is that we have to find ways to help families trust, to have the confidence that they can and, and will do better, and do better on their own. And so in Chicago everything that they've mentioned is hitting Chicago, just like any other city in this country. When we manage that information on who's seeking help, more than 80% of the individuals seeking help are African American, traditionally male, traditionally between, uh, typically between the ages of 29 and 39. And so right away, what does that get to you? We like to look at folks who are involved in the child welfare system who are involved in the juvenile criminal justice system who have issues with home, school, and community. If you look at those three areas and see how young people are functioning, that's the point where we try to start this. And so one of the challenges that we see is just the disconnect between the definition of homelessness, what we're talking about, and how it leads to the funding that attaches to it, and what's actually happening out there. And it's really important that we realize and open our arms to these different partners to bring them to the table. Because guess what? If you're in criminal justice, child welfare, other, we're dealing with some of the same people. Mm -hmm. We're bouncing from system to system to system. We don't have to do that if we find a way to be preventive and come to the table together and talk about these common issues. And so for, for us, it's really important. We want to move the system. There are good resources that come in to help address this issue. But if the definition of homelessness, please understand this for sure, it does not fully encompass what homelessness is. It is not the full grab-it-all-and-put-it-in-one-bag-and-say-this-is-homelessness. Because for many of us, if you look at the cultural factors involved, there are many people of varying backgrounds, diversity, their race, who never even seek assistance. They go into their own systems, their own networks of family, friends, who do you know to be able to access some type of assistance. And so when you hear about couch surfing and things of that nature, those are all real things. But we don't have the numbers on those because those are folks who are not entering the system asking for assistance. One thing I do want to mention is prevention to me is so critical that we tie it with the youth voices, as you mentioned. We sponsor a youth advisory board. If you want to know, and why I ask you if you are parents or grandparents, if you want to know what's going on with young people, ask them. It might be hard to hear what they're telling you and what they're experiencing, but we all took that path to adulthood. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you just have to go back and reflect on the challenges that you yourself have. I was raised in a single-parent household. So let me tell you the stereotypes that just came in your mind. Why? I'm black, I'm female, single, House. Okay, my mother was widowed, but I had a community that came and helped to raise my family and my siblings. We have so many young people who don't have that type of resource support available to them, and if they do, they don't know how to access it. So we've got to get the schools. We've got to get points where young people are to be able to get them engaged and help them. We don't save anybody. We help them find their own path to sufficiency.
2: Great great start. Um, I'm going to ask Jeff to talk a little bit more about the prevention plan that you put forward and why um, you were driven to do that. And then I'm going to transition to a couple of audience questions just given the sure. time that we have. But can you just give us a kind of an outline uh, of your thinking around the prevention plan and why this was the right time to do that work?
3: We, the Biden-Harris administration in December released a comprehensive federal strategic plan to prevent and end homelessness. It has a lot of moving parts to it, a lot of different pillars that focus on different aspects of homelessness. One of the Key dimensions of it is around preventing homelessness before it starts. Yeah. And I'm going to start broad, kind of bigger than youth to start with, and then just can zero down. Across the United States, every day, almost 2,500 people exit homelessness. It's kind of incredible. It's almost a million people a year successfully exit homelessness. <laughs> and yet we still have homelessness, right? We haven't done a very good job turning off the faucets into homelessness. Uh, in, In the 30 years that I've been in this work, you'll sometimes get this question of, well, why haven't we solved homelessness yet? We keep putting resources towards it. Why haven't we solved it? Well, we have solved it. We've solved it many times over in the 30 years I've been working in this field. What we have not done is to prevent inflow. And so the equation has to be not what it is now, which is 2,500 people a day leave homelessness, 2,500 more people a day become homeless. That's kind of the situation we're in right now. Smaller numbers for youth, but, but still you get the idea. We've got to be able to turn our attention upstream. And that can be done in a couple of ways. Sometimes people talk about universal prevention strategies. This would be something like social security. We all pay into it. When we hit a certain age, we all have access to that Sort of basic level of income. What that universal strategy did when it came into being in 1936 is it lifted millions of older Americans out of poverty. That's a universal strategy. A targeted strategy is where you say, let's look at people who are being released from incarceration. It's a very targeted strategy group, let's focus energy there, make sure they've got supportive housing when they leave, make sure they're not living under a bridge or in a shelter. That would be a targeted approach. There's something that brings these things together. This is the work of John Powell at Berkeley called targeted universalism, where we'd say, let's take a a broad idea and target it at a a very high-risk group, often one that is racially disproportionate maybe to the general population, ideas like that. A very concrete example of this is something that's being called guaranteed basic income. And I'll uh, give a shout out to our friends at Chapin Hall. I think, Brian, the the team uh, that you all have there is really leading the nation on uh, looking at what guaranteed income would look like for youth and doing uh, rigorous studies on it and and really looking at where if we provided people with a basic level of income to survive, good things happen they get into housing. They stay in housing. They get jobs. They get back in school. They reconnect Mm -hmm. with family and friends in different ways. So when you take away the stress of, I don't know where I'm going to stay tonight, and I don't know where my next meal is going to come from, really good things can happen for people. So those are the kind of strategies we're trying to put forward in the prevention plan. So so, Carolyn, one of the questions that comes from the
2: audience that might start from a local conversation is, um, as the homeless system itself evolves. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, Increasingly, shelters are stratifying themselves as for this population or that population, male families, so on and so forth. Um, uh, The the concern about the trans youth um, and how does a, a system that is trying to tailor its services to target populations, how does it do that without uh, ignoring or failing to address the issues uh, of the, the trans population and the experiences that they're having in terms of accessing homeless services.
4: Absolutely. Um, in our business, unfortunately, again, as I mentioned about the funding, kind of drives me nuts that we have to put a label on your forehead to determine how we're going to help you, particularly if you've sought out that help. In Chicago, the LGBTQI population is... Growing They have a stronger voice, and they're getting there. But there's a lot that they deal with before they come to this point. It's so important for them to have the stability of a home. But when you have to deal with the stigma of so many other issues, it just acceptance. It really has a, a particular taste on it, right? But when you talk about the prevention and the whole piece of finding those targeted solutions to targeted prevention areas we do it with veterans we do it with families we do it with no one loses in that situation because we have a core of youth providers within our continuum of care that is educating us on what our youth are seeing what they're experiencing what their needs are and they're doing that because they have youth right there they can ask them what do you need? What are you not getting? What do you need help with? So I think it's really important that that continues and is supported. And for a lot of our young people, they've had a really hard road by the time they get to actually getting assistance. And so we've got to be able to help them find that beam of hope, because it's so easy for them to be disappointed, to not have that um, enthusiasm that something good is gonna happen for them. With our trans youth here in Chicago, I think, you know, our school systems and some of the political rhetoric that's been out there is such a deterrent to them where they're just trying to find a place to belong. And we have to do so much work on their self-esteem, our partners do, in in working with them. It's really kind of hard to get to that. So they're just as important, and we try to elevate them. There is a resurgence in our continuum right now to help try to re lift up and reprioritize youth concerns as a priority. It has to be. These are people who are going to be making decisions for us in the future. We've got to give them a strong foundation to stand on, sit on, and feel like they're worthy and that their voice can be heard. And so I hope that answers the question. But we don't treat them any different in the sense of you're different, so this is how we treat you. We want to make sure that we are listening to what their needs are and try to adapt accordingly.
2: So, Jeff, one of the questions that was raised here uh, revolves around the idea that um, there are government at different layers that have different responsibilities for homelessness. So you start up here at the national level, USICH is coordinating all of the federal agencies, and then it cascades down. Um, One of the questions is um, around local government. There's no necessarily assigned responsibility by legislation of localities to address the issue, per se. How do you engage local government? How do you engage different levels of government to see this as a problem for which they are either helping to prevent or contributing uh, in terms of the work that they will do? So it's a question around engagement. City of Chicago, county of Cook, how do you engage other government entities around solving this problem?
3: Yeah, it's a really good question. And where my mind first goes is that homelessness is a multi-system failure. It's not just one thing. Mm-hmm. It's not just mental illness. It's not just housing. It's not just criminal legal system involvement. It's a Homelessness is the reflection of a whole bunch of stuff that's broken, a whole bunch of systems that have failed people. If that's your conception of homelessness, and it is mine, then... Multi-system failures require multi-system solutions, and when we start thinking about those systems, they're funded in a lot of different ways. Some things are state level, some are county, some are city, some are privately funded, run by nonprofits. Sometimes the faith community is playing a role. Sometimes federal government is coming down through a group like All Chicago and flowing out to uh, to other programs. What that requires then is immense coordination and alignment at all of those levels and so when you when I think about engaging maybe city departments that have not always been at the table, I think mayoral leadership really matters you 've got a new mayor that 's a great opportunity i know that I know mayor johnson 's putting together uh, his new cabinet i 'm going to be meeting with his him and his team this afternoon. Um, try to influence that try to influence the way those different city agencies are working together. Uh, tomorrow morning, Governor Pritzker is signing a new piece of legislation that's putting $300 million into homelessness uh, response and uh, codifying the State Interagency Council on Homelessness, led by Christine Haley, who I think is doing an extraordinary job mm-hmm. here in Illinois. That kind of model, where you've got state departments working together, if you can get city departments working together, if we're doing that at the federal level, and then we're getting all of those pieces aligned, then I think really good things start to happen. Mm-hmm. Where there's fragmentation, there's just finger-pointing and blame, yeah. and that gets us nowhere.
4: Yeah.
2: Yeah. I, I think one of the powerful things that comes with USICH uh, is that you've got cabinet-level um, secretaries sitting around the table together. Uh, and they're commingling and integrating their various strategies in ways that give a more federal government response than any one agency would have. And so imagining that at the state of Illinois level um, could be really, really powerful. Um, um, Carolyn, as as you think about Um, uh, engaging government agencies Mm -hmm. around the work of responding to youth homelessness uh, and young adults. How how do you approach um, government entities and the role that they might play uh, in partnership with you?
4: Absolutely. It's really good. I mean, I'll give you a good example of just the connection of that. We know all the moving parts. We just gotta get them to slow down and work together, right? And so recently, if you heard, Chicago received, we had a visit from Secretary Marsha Fudge from the US Department of Housing and Urban Development. Chicago is gonna get $60 million over the, over the next three years to deal with unsheltered homelessness. Now in Chicago, just so you understand, the city of Chicago receives the emergency funding to manage the shelters but they are a big part of our continuum. They're involved in the discussions and everything. So with Jeff and his, with USICH, we've reached out and they're providing technical assistance through HUD and just helping us. He, he's all over the country, so his eyes can bring things back to us to help us see what other, what other areas are doing. And so we can't do this work by ourselves. We know that. And as, as you said earlier, just it just becomes a pointing finger issue if we're not all acknowledging that this is a problem that together we can come together and solve. And so our government partners are important. We have people involved in our continuum of care, part of the planning from the city, from from the county, from our we have some of our providers here in the audience. In Chicago, we have the Chicago funders together to end homelessness, kind of integrating that public-private partnership, as well as medical community, education, and such. We need to hear their voices to make sure that we're all kind of staying on task with what we're looking at. And so it's a valuable piece. Sometimes, yes, politics gets in the way. That's just my opinion. Uh, but we want everybody to understand the value to our communities when our young people thrive. What are the things that you wanted when you were a young person? This is not new to us, right? Everybody wants to, have, to feel value, to feel like that they can make a mark on this world. And it's so important that we continue to work together in this because we can't do this by ourselves, not without our partners, including our government partners and those who provide funding and sometimes just talking about policy. This thing that's happening tomorrow with the governor is awesome. It establishes a chief, a state homelessness chief, an interagency council, similar, reflect, reflective of the work that they do at USICH here locally at the state level. And then there's a statewide advisory commission in which many of us who work in this space, governor has appointed us to serve on that commission to advise our government partners on the things that we're seeing and the needs that we have in this space. So we're really pleased to have those kinds of relationships
2: I, I would echo the the, the potential that uh, this legislation has. Um, as some of you know, I spent four years in D.C. as the uh, commissioner for the administration of children and families, um, and we were responsible for both the child welfare policy and practice as well mm-hmm. as the runaway and homeless youth. And one of the great frustrations in being in that job uh, is that if I needed to talk to anybody on the child welfare side, regardless of what state they were in, there was a Rolodex of names that I could pick up and call, and I knew that what their responsibilities were and the resources that they had. There was no Rolodex on the runaway and homeless youth side because we didn't fund government or we didn't have government playing a coordinating role
4: Correct.
2: around youth homelessness. And so in order to talk to those folks, I'd have to pick up the phone and, and, and find a program <laughs> locally. Uh, and so the, the, the legislation creates a much more balanced approach now that gives a state entity responsibility that then cascades down to the local level has much greater potential uh, to bring to bear all of the human services uh, in the state uh, um, towards uh, being able to address this problem uh, effectively. Yeah. So with that, we have gotten to the end of our time. There are a ton of questions here that we didn't get to. I apologize for that. But hopefully folks uh, enjoyed the conversation. Hopefully you took something away from the conversation. Hopefully this inc- inspires you to, to, to scratch the surface a little more, explore what you might do to address the issue, uh, um, encourage others to take a closer look at these concerns because uh, they affect everybody uh, um, across the city. Uh, and if we can find a way to respond to these vulnerable youth, I think we create a society where justice and equality uh, is, is achievable. And so with that, thanks for you being here this afternoon. We'll see you soon.
0: Thank you, Brian. In in that spirit, uh, thank you. There were a host of great questions. Thank you all for stepping up. Of course, I knew you would. Um, hopefully, we can have y'all back. Um, what what a topic! What a what a group of of brilliant individuals. So. In that spirit, I do have a um, one-year membership for each of you, ah. and uh, not only welcome, but encourage you to come back, Absolutely. And, uh, and perhaps, uh, Brian, I may take some of those questions, and we can use them uh, sure. next time, so I want to make sure that sure. you know, everyone is, is able to, um, to hear those questions answered, and perhaps maybe there's some ideas in there, too. Okay. Uh, I have all sorts of notes, and I, I, I'm sure you all do, too, um, but what I really heard was collaboration, public-private partnerships. Um, preventative measures and and um, I really enjoyed hearing nothing about us without us that's that that can that's what City Club I think is all about getting the right people in the room Um, and and none of this happens without identifying and addressing the challenges so thank you for being here we at City Club are proud to provide this platform to address and identify some of these challenges and hope that all of you in the room who are doing great things uh, to achieve solutions can continue that. Um, please come back to our panelists. Please, please come back. Jeff Olivet Carolyn Ross, Brian Samuels. Great to have you at City Club. Uh, and I hope the, the rest of you all have a great day and a, a beautiful Chicago week, and we see you back at City Club soon. Thank you. Thank you.